Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to find a seat. First ones to sit down, get seats, and then after that, they're left standing. It's kind of like that game, you know. Well, good morning. As you uh, know, if you've been here, we've been going through the book of Proverbs and hitting a variety of different topics. And this morning, we land on the topic of money. Proverbs on money. And Proverbs actually has an awful lot to say about wise money management and about foolish money management. Proverbs paints a picture of money being a resource, a resource that is entrusted to us that can be used wisely to meet needs and to honor God, or a resource that can be used foolishly with a variety of destructive consequences. Now, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you're going to see a variety of words that really hit this topic. Words like money, silver, gold, treasure, rubies, wealth, riches, poverty, profit, greed, inheritance, giving. And I think sometimes it's tempting as we read those, you see some verses about wealth and riches, to think, well, that really doesn't apply to me because I don't perceive myself to be a wealthy person. In fact, if I were to ask to do a little survey this morning, raise your hand if you feel like you're a wealthy person. I'm guessing most of you wouldn't put your hands up, but don't worry, I'm not going to actually ask that this morning. That's just hypothetical. We don't see ourselves that way, do we? But we shouldn't dismiss those verses quickly. According to a new report from the Economic Policy Institute, if you wanted to be in the wealthiest 1% of folks in the United States, you would need to earn at least $422,000 a year or more. So raise your hand if you... No, no, don't do that. <laughs> so that, you know, that makes us sound like, yeah, that's, that's not me. But here's the deal. Zoom out with your lens. Instead of just hitting America, include the world in that equation. According to the global rich list, you're in the top 1% in the world if you have an income of $32,000 a year or more. Now, that kind of changes your perspective a little, doesn't it? Now, this morning we're going to talk about money, and that's always dangerous. It's, it's a risky proposition. Talking about money is controversial. It's personal. I've noticed it can cause people to quickly go into a defensive mode or a protective mindset. But I'm going to ask you this morning to kind of just put your shields down for a little while. And let's just take a look at what Proverbs has to say about God's wisdom for managing money. So relax, take your hands off your wallet. Uh, we are not kicking off a new fundraising campaign at the end of the service. No pledge cards will be handed out. No special offerings will be taken. Let's just have an honest, open, straight talk about money from the book of Proverbs. Can we do that? Okay, we started off in this series talking about what does the world say about these areas. So let's ask that question. What does the world say is a good way to manage your money? Well, the world's wisdom in this area would, could be summarized this way. In the area of money, get as much as you can any way you can because money will bring you both security and happiness. The world says accumulating money and wealth is a worthy purpose for living. In fact, it's a great life goal to have. The world would say using credit or debt to get instant gratification for living beyond your income is a great idea and one that you will never regret. The world says love money and use people to get as much as you can so that you could fulfill every selfish desire that crosses your mind because that would just be a wonderful life. So if you follow the world's wisdom with money, where does it take you? Well, 
Let's take a look at that. Let's look at our context, living in America today. The U.S. has the world's largest diversified economy based on nominal gross domestic product and the second largest economy in the world based on purchasing power parity. The U.S. had a gross domestic product in 2018 of $20.5 trillion. That's trillion with a T. So in that context, let's look at how the average American is doing using the world's money management system. Here's a snapshot of the average American. The average American household is $132,000 in debt. 44 million Americans have student loans. The average student loan debt is $29,000. The average car loan these days is $30,000. There are over 1.9 billion open credit card accounts in the United States alone. The average American is carrying a credit card balance of $15,000, which he is financing at 18% every month, which means the average American spends $2,630 every year on nothing but credit card interest. And the banks love this arrangement. American banks collected in credit card interest and fees this past year $104 billion. 64% of Americans report that they could not cover a $1,000 emergency in their household. There's no margin. And here's a sad one. After a lifetime of earnings, 40% of Americans will enter retirement with less than $10,000 in savings after a lifetime of work. So if you follow the world's wisdom for managing your money, you become the average American. And as you see from these statistics, being the average American financially is the last thing you want to be. It's interesting, the world promises that if you just get enough money, it'll bring you happiness and security. <clears throat> Yet, according to a recent poll conducted by the American Psychological Association, Americans listed the greatest source of stress in their lives as not being their work, not being family responsibilities, not even being health concerns. Three out of four Americans, 75% of Americans, listed the leading cause of stress in their life as being money, finances. So that's how the world works. Or maybe it would be better to say that's how the world doesn't work. What does the Lord have to say on this important area, this very practical area of our lives? Well, this morning we're going to land on four biblical principles from the book of Proverbs about money. So let's go ahead and get started. The first one is this. Trust God with this area of your life, and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Now you might think, well, that didn't mention money, but it's really all about finances. This applies very much to the financial world. I think in the area of finances, it's very tempting for us to compartmentalize. To kind of say, I have over here my spiritual life where I'm trusting God for my salvation, to be my savior, for my eternity, but then to develop kind of an invisible wall and say, and then there's over here where I have my money, my income, my paycheck, my plans, where I'm taking care of, of my needs. And it's tempting to try to compartmentalize these two. And that compartmentalized strategy is really a bad idea because it creates a lot of anxiety and stress in our lives. 
the reality is that God not, God not only has a will for our lives, but He also has a plan for finances, for the stewardship of the money that He gives to us. And it may surprise you, but God does finances, and not only that, He's really good at it. I mean, He's really good. <laughs> the reality is that His plan, His way of thinking about, His way of handling money results in being a blessing in our lives. It's a path that leads to peace and to loving kindness and to provision and to protection. Like we saw earlier, the statistics are that the world's approach to money management will lead us down a very complicated, crooked path in the wrong direction that leaves us with stress, anxiety, and debt. But God says, if you try my approach to money management, I'm going to make your path straight. Jesus was even bold enough to say in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, go back and study that context of Matthew 6. What were all these things? Well, that's your financial stuff. That's the bills. That's the income and the outgo. All these things were finances. He's saying, seek first my kingdom, and I'm going to take care of that. He even went so far as to say in the next words out of his mouth, so you don't have to worry about it. God's plan is not complicated. It's not crooked. It's not stress-filled. In fact, it's simple. It's trusting. It's comprehensive. And it's marked by a spirit of peace. In God's economy, this area is all about trust. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This is really about trust. It's a trust issue. Will we choose to put our trust and our hope in ourselves, in our ability to provide, or will we put our trust in our Heavenly Father? A Heavenly Father who, according to Matthew 6.32, knows about our needs even before we do, even before we've prayed about them. So what happens when we trust God with our finances? Well, according to Proverbs 3, God says, I'm going to make your path straight. I'm going to make your path clear. So how do we practically trust God with our money? Well, the Bible identifies two ways we can exercise financial trust in God. One is by generous giving. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. When we give generously, we are acting like our Heavenly Father because that's how God has acted towards us. God reminds us that God is our source, not ourselves, not our career, not our paycheck, not our bank accounts, not our retirement savings. God reminds us that life is not about the accumulation of stuff. It's really about seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Because God has promised that if we will do that, He's going to take care of the rest of the details. God is our provider. We need to remember that. Remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Not our weekly bread. Not our monthly bread. Not bread for 2019. Not bread for this decade or until I you know, leave this world. But we are to wake up every day with this sense of just, God, you are my source. You know, give me today my daily bread. Now, God's going to use a variety of ways to meet our needs at different times, but we should remember that our hope, our trust, needs to always be in our loving Heavenly Father and not in the means or in the median of that provision. So when we then are generous givers, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. 
And it says that our Heavenly Father notices that, and He provides for our needs. There's a biblical principle in the New Testament that says you reap what you sow. The point is whatever you, you sow tends to be what you get back. And this is true in every area of our life, but it's also true in finances, in our generosity. Proverbs 11.25 says, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. A second way that we can demonstrate practically trusting in God with our finances is by keeping the Sabbath. In Exodus 28, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God has established this life rhythm of setting aside one day each week to stop, to rest, to delight, and to contemplate. Now, if left to our own wisdom, we would probably work ourselves to death 24-7 trying to meet our real needs or anticipated needs. But God says, don't do that. You are more to me than a worker. You're a beloved child. So here's what I want you to do. Develop a rhythm each week of a day of rest. A day to stop, a day to rest, a day to delight, a day to contemplate. Psalms 46.10 says this way. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, developing this rhythm of Sabbath rest allows us to acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And we need to remember that regularly. It allows us then to embrace our limits, to remind ourselves that God is the one on the throne and He can actually run this world without my help. It reminds us to rest in the promise of God's provision instead of wearing ourselves out with the deception of self-sufficiency. Now, resting a day makes us more efficient, but we don't rest in order to be more efficient. Resting actually makes us work better, but we don't rest in order to work better. We rest because God invites us into His rest, and He knows that we need it, and you need it, and God knows you need it, and God thinks you're worth it. So actually, Sabbath rest is one way of showing that we're actually trusting in God with our finances. A second principle in Proverbs, in terms of money management, is this. Pursue wisdom above wealth. Proverbs 8.10 says, Take my instruction, not silver, and knowledge rather than the choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. In other words, pursue wisdom, pursue God's will for your life above the pursuit of money. Remember what Jesus said, we're supposed to seek first, the number one thing on our list of seeking, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when we do that, He says the other stuff is just going to be taken care of. Have you learned that sometimes less is better than more? Have you run across that one yet? Sometimes less is better than more. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord, then a great treasure with turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is, than a fattened ox served with hatred. Now, the Bible does not condemn having money. The Bible does not condemn being wealthy. If you think about it, in order to give, you have to have, right? There's nothing wrong with that. What the Bible condemns is the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 will say it this way. Now, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have actually wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, wisdom will teach us the value of something called contentment. Contentment. 1 Timothy 6 says it this way, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, and so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Wisdom teaches us to discern the difference between things like needs and wants and desires, and we have all three of those, don't we? In some seasons of life, it might be a needs-only season. In other seasons, it might be a needs and wants season. And in other seasons, it might be a needs, wants, and desires season. But the thing about seasons is seasons change. And as we learn the beauty of a contented spirit, we can enjoy and actually be thankful in every one of those different seasons. Paul would describe his journey this way. He said, For I have learned to be content. Notice he didn't say I was born with it. I got it from the get-go. He said, I've learned it. It's something I picked up along the way. I, I didn't used to have it, but now I have learned it. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. For I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Wisdom teaches us to understand and embrace the gift of limits. You don't have an unlimited supply of money. I'm making an assumption here, but I'm going to go with it. You don't have an unlimited supply of money. So use what you have on the things that are truly important. That's not just true of money, though. That's true of many areas of our life, isn't it? You don't have an unlimited supply of time. So use what you have on the things that are truly important. You don't have an unlimited supply of emotional energy. So use what you have on the things that are truly important. Let's quit fighting or denying we have limits. We have limits. And instead of resisting them, why don't we embrace them and why don't we manage well the resources that have been entrusted to our care? Our limits are a gift. They remind us that there is a God and we are not Him. We need to be reminded of that. Wisdom teaches us to invite biblical accountability into our world. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Over the years, I've had a chance to talk to some people who made some very large, life-impacting, bad financial choices. Usually, we're talking after the train wreck. And a lot of times, I'll just ask, well, did you, did you talk with anyone about this before you did this, before you entered into that agreement, before you went down this road? Did you run this by anyone you know, before you signed those documents? And the answer is always no. And it just occurs to me, how much heartache and pain could have been saved if there was a willingness to let iron sharpen iron? You know, as, it is okay to talk about money. It is okay. That's not a taboo topic. Now, we should have some brothers and sisters around us who love us and who know us, and we should be able to bounce some of these ideas we have off them. And if we did, they could bring some godly counsel into our world and potentially protect us from some really foolish moves. Talk to some people in your life who have nothing to lose by telling you the truth, and then listen to them. 
Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is the poor who walks with his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. 17.1, Better is a dry morsel with quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. The point here is when you stand at a fork in the road and one path seems to lead to wealth and the other leads to wisdom and God's will for your life, always choose wisdom. Always choose wisdom. When you seek God's wisdom first in our lives, it allows us to be more at peace, more relaxed about our financial situations. Psalms 30, 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I might not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I might not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, both the lack of money and too much money both present opportunities for us to forget that we're to be trusting God every day in this area of our life, that He is our provider and that He is our source. So Proverbs reminds us to learn to trust God and relax a little. Quit being so uptight and worried about money. Because both poverty and wealth have their own set of temptations and traps, and in a way, both poverty and wealth are both liars. They're lying to you by saying you need to put your focus on money. That's not true. We need to put our focus on God. Let Him take care of the money. So they're both liars, wealth and poverty. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. This passage is mentioning there really are two problems with making the goal of your life the accumulation of money. The first problem is this. It will wear you out. It will wear you out. How much is enough? How much is enough for you? Well, you probably are answering that question in your mind by thinking of what you currently have and adding 10 or 20%. Well, if I just had that a little more, this whole thing would be a whole lot easier, and I, I think I'd be happy. But, you know, you've been at less, and you kept... See, we have this tendency to think just a little bit more, and I'll hit that point where it'll all be good. But when we hit those points, when we get that little bit more, that 10 20% more, that new raise, that whatever, you know what? Is it enough? It's never enough, is it? From that plateau, you see things you didn't see before, and you go, wow, boy, if I just had a little bit more, you know, this would be good. And every time we hit a plateau, we see things we didn't see before. We, you know, you think, I made it, I'm there, I hit my plan. You read some article, oh, I don't have enough. Okay. <laughs> I better get back to work. It's never enough. It will wear you out. <clears throat> you could commit every minute of your day. You could live 24-7 for the accumulation of wealth. Your thirst will always be unquenchable. It will just wear you out. And after it's taken all of your time, your health, your marriage, your family, your friends, your very soul, guess what? After you've destroyed yourself to attain it, the verse says there's a second thing that will happen. After that, it will leave you. It will abandon you. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. It makes itself wings and flies away. You see, there's a market correction. The business goes bankrupt. The bottom falls out. The funds were embezzled. The technology just changed. If you're putting your hope in wealth this morning, allow me to tell you how that story will end. So here's a little spoiler alert from Proverbs 23.5. It will end in disappointment and regret. 
And that's not true 10% of the time. That's not true 20% of the time. That's not true 50% of the time. That's not even true 80% of the time. That is true 100% of the time. That story will end in bitter disappointment and agonizing regret. Because wealth cannot deliver security or happiness. Never has and it never will. It can meet basic needs, but it can't do that. It can't give you security or happiness. In Luke 17, Jesus told a parable about a fellow. He was a farmer. He was a pretty prosperous farmer. His barns were full. Life was good. And he decided, you know, things are going my way financially. And I think I'm just going to tear my barns down and build even bigger barns. And you know what? When I build those bigger barns and when I fill those bigger barns up, boy, I will be set. Life will be good. I will kick back and just enjoy the rest of my life. It will give me security. It will give me happiness. You know what God the Father's opinion of that fellow was? He says, you are a fool. You are a fool. Because he said, this very night, I'm going to require your soul. And then you are going to stand before a holy God on the precipice of eternity. And you think a couple bushels of wheat is going to make a difference? You're a fool. You climbed the wrong ladder, buddy. Wealth can't deliver those things. In the end, it disappoints 100% of the time. So don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in a God who never abandons, who never disappoints, who never forsakes his children, who is actually 100% faithful 100% of the time. If you think about it, why would we put our hope anywhere else? Third principle from Proverbs. Work hard and diligently at what you do. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. That reference is wrong. Maybe we'll get it right for the third one. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the Anno sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come on you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Now this proverb commends the ant for its hard work, for its preparation for the future, and for its planning ahead for winter. This proverb is rebuking the quality of laziness and commending self-discipline and hard work. Now, self-discipline is saying no to the quick fix and the easy road and saying yes to the harder but better way. Self-discipline is saying no to instant gratification and saying yes to delayed gratification, often through the tool of advanced decision-making, of identifying what could be and what should be and deciding in advance to make the choices that will lead you there. Proverbs 12:11 says he who tills his land will have plenty of bread but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Now the tilling of the land that's hard work that's honest work that's productive work. Pursuing worthless things those are those speculations those are the get rich quick schemes where wealth is tried to be attained through something other than honest work. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Fraud is the cutting of the corners. It's deception to increase profit apart from real, honest work. 
14.23, in all labor there is profit. The mere talk leads only to poverty. So he's saying there, let's get busy and let's do what we do. Just sitting around and talking can actually be just laziness. 22.9, do you see a man skilled in his work? Well, he will stand before kings. Now, what's the point of all these? Well, the point here is it's getting at, think for a minute about what it is you do. If you have a job, what is your job? You know, you could be a software engineer, you could be a teacher, just figure out whatever that profession is, whatever that job is you have. Think about that for a minute. And the point of these verses is whatever it is you do, it doesn't really matter what you do, whatever it is, invest the time and energy and do it well. I mean, do it well. Why not be good at it? Why not excel at your profession, your job? Don't just slide by. Don't do as little as possible. But actually take pride in what you do. And do it to the glory of God. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Know the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. This proverb is speaking to a quality of diligence. It says, Take care of that which has been entrusted to you. Manage well the opportunities that have been given to you. We had a child dedication this morning. And as, as a person who's who's gone through that and, and dedicated three kiddos, and, and now I can look out and I can see them as 30-year-old adults with their own families and kids. You know, let me just remind you that, that that's an opportunity to steward a life. It's not your life. The children are a gift of God. They belong to God. You just get this wonderful opportunity for 20 years to manage them, to, to grow them up, and, and then to release them back to God. So it's an opportunity of stewardship. And then God's saying, that's really what the finances are about. You have an opportunity. So know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herd. Whatever it is you do, uh, do it well. Do, add diligence to it. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, but I don't like my flock. You know, I don't think I have very good sheep. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your sheep, your sheep. Now, if I had your flock, I think I would do a pretty good job, and I'd give it a lot of energy and attention. But my sheep are kind of dumb. And... <laughs> And they don't smell good, and you know your flock really looks great. I, you know, if I had that flock, I would be diligent, and I would I would work. No, God says, hey, you got a flock, you got a job, you got something. What has been put in your hands? Okay, be diligent, take good care of it. Know well the condition of your flock. Pay attention to your herds. You know what? If you pay attention to your herds, you might find God may prosper and increase that herd in a way that surprises you. You just never know. But don't be envious of others' herds. You know, manage well what's been put in your hands. Diligence. Fourth principle from Proverbs, avoid debt whenever possible and get out of it as soon as possible. Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Now, how do you become a slave when you take on debt? Well, you become a slave in that in the minute you agree to that, you all of a sudden have some diminished rights and you have some diminished options. Some options just got taken off the table when that agreement was made. Proverbs 22.6, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. Proverbs 6.1-5, my son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, if you've shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, if you've been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. Now, what is the, the writer doing here? The writer of Proverbs is painting a picture with these words, okay? He's painting a picture here of the foolish use of debt, of the careless or an undisciplined use of credit. 
He's painting a picture of unnecessary entanglement in debt, maybe an impulsive purchase of something you really didn't need with money you really didn't have to ultimately impress people you don't even like. (laughs) So what does wisdom teach us to do in that situation? Well, it continues there. He says, so do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. We've all watched some nature documentary, haven't we? It's in Africa and there's some lion on the hunt and there's this gazelle herd and he runs at it and they start running for their lives. And you know how that, we've all seen that, you know, it's a pretty classic picture. Think of that gazelle and what he's doing. That gazelle is not holding anything back. He's putting his full effort into that running for your life because he really literally is running for his life. If he does not run well in that moment, there are no other moments, okay? So he's going. He's giving it his best. And as we mentioned, the world says, hey, debt's a wonderful shortcut to living the good life. But, you know, Proverbs would, uh, would not agree with that life view. <clears throat> now, these passages are not saying that all or any debt is automatically wrong. Unless you're a trust fund baby, when you go to buy your first house, you're probably going to take out something called a mortgage for it. But Proverbs is counseling us that we should never enter into debt unnecessarily, lightly, or without carefully considering the consequences of that. And when that tool is used, we should be intentional about getting out of debt with extreme urgency, like a gazelle running for its life. The world will tell you living in debt is normal, it's ever-present, so get whatever you want, get it whenever you want it. You know, Amazon will drop it on your doorstep in two days. And since you'll always be in debt, what does it really matter how many zeros are at the end of that number? You can always just keep making the minimum payments and it won't be too bad, right? Well, that's the world's view. Proverbs would call that foolish living and presents a different way to live. Proverbs would say taking on debt should be something that is unusual, not usual, temporary, not permanent. Proverbs would say live on a zero-based budget. In other words, commit to living on what you make each month and refuse to use credit to live beyond your means. And if you have debt, commit to living in such a way that you are in the process of paying it off as quickly as possible. Remember, give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand. In other words, have a sense of urgency about paying off the debt. And then when you get out of debt choose to stay debt-free as far as it depends upon you. Refuse to go back into debt with undisciplined spending habits. Now, each of us here is going to have to figure out how to apply these principles to our situation. I would encourage you, if you've never taken the the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University class, uh, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, This September, it's starting up in about 30 churches around Kansas City. There's a link in your bulletin there you could look at. Uh, If you haven't done that, if you're married, take it together as a couple. That'll be of the greatest value to you. But whether you're single or married, it's it's an excellent class. It talks about this whole thing of money management and how to honor God with that. It could be a lot of great ideas to work with about getting out of debt and staying out of debt. It is possible to live debt-free. That is not a hypothetical scenario only available to the wealthy. I know many people in this church who are living debt-free. And when you do that, it creates something in your life called margin. Margin. And it's good to have a little margin around the edges. 
Um, gives you a lot of peace of mind. In America, over 20 million people are living in their homes debt-free. Now, I'll guarantee you every one of those 20 million Americans at some point thought, well, I got this one paid off, and the bank will loan me money, and I've always wanted to ring, you know, get a new kitchen and more bathrooms and a few extra garages. And, you know, I guarantee you they had the thought, why not just get bigger and get more? But you know what they did? Apparently 20 million people said, well, I could do that. But you know what? This, this meets my needs. I think I'm just going to stay here and have a little margin in my life. And that's called contentment. So we have to figure out how these things apply. Over the years, Sharon and I have borrowed money at times to buy homes or to buy some cars. And each time we did that, we would borrow as little as possible and we would pay it off as quickly as possible because we really wanted our normal to be living debt-free. So you can figure out how this would apply to your world, but the Proverbs would tell us to be in one of two places in the area of debt. Either one, in the process of getting out of debt as soon as possible, or number two, in the process of living then debt-free as far as it depends on our choices. There are some things like medical situations that might come in that might change that. That's not, that might be outside your control. But let's work with the things in our control and let's seek you know, to move towards this, uh, this principle of living debt-free and having margin and peace of mind in our worlds. So how do, we, uh, how do we apply these principles? Well, let me just start by saying what we've been talking about this morning is really an in-house discussion, okay? So don't tell anyone what you heard, all right? It stays right in here. No. But it's, it's in-house, it's in the family of God, okay? It's, I'm talking to people who have a Heavenly Father and recognize this morning that God is delighted when we trust ourselves to the Heavenly Father. This is an in-house discussion. If, if that's not where you're at this morning, if you're here this morning, but you say, well, I'm not sure if I really am a child of God, then I'm going to ask you to forget everything that I said up to this point, okay? Wipe it from your minds right now, because <clears throat> this is not what you need to hear, okay? You might be here this morning, and you might feel a very pressing financial need, but I'd just like to say that if you have not yet joined the family of God through faith in Christ... Uh, your financial need, as pressing as it might feel this morning, is not your greatest need. You don't need to hear about money management. Uh, what you need to hear about is this opportunity to actually join the family of God and have a Heavenly Father who will do this for you. Okay? So if you have not become a child of God, and you don't become a child of God by being born physically, you become a child of God by being born spiritually, being born again. If you're not sure what that means, if that's something that you've thought about, but, but you'd just like someone to pray with you and, and help you understand what that means to do that, would you come talk to me after the service or come talk to one of the staff members? Uh, we'd love to help you uh, make that decision to find a Heavenly Father who takes such good care of their children as, uh, as we've been talking about this morning. So don't think about finances if you're not yet uh, in the family. Uh, think about becoming a part of the family through faith in Christ, and we'll pray with you about that this morning if you'd like to do that. Okay, back to the family. Like we mentioned, the Dave Ramsey course is an excellent resource. You could go to Right Now Media and just Google money. You'll get 62 responses, 62 resources there you could look at. Great place to start. You could talk to someone in the church, a staff member, a good resource person. But the point is maybe this is an area where it's time to set some goals, to, to track this resource, to get a picture of how am I doing in the area of just stewarding the things that God has given to me, the gifts. Ask yourself some penetrating questions, such as, 
You know, what could be in my life in this area? What should be in my life in this area? And then set a course to get there. If we can trust God with our eternal salvation of our souls, then we can trust Him with something as small and insignificant as money. Um, Four biblical principles from Proverbs. Let's pursue wisdom above wealth. Work hard and diligently at what you do. Avoid debt whenever possible and get out of it as soon as possible. Because when we trust God with this area of our lives, He will make our paths straight and He will bring glory to Himself.